and Ziploc that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, Now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no joke Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Trap Draw Podcast. Uh, we have a very special, timely guest with us today, Brian Anderson. Uh, he's a play-by-play announcer for Turner Sports. He covers uh, the Major League Baseball on TBS, regular season and postseason. He works the NBA on TNT. He's involved in the NCAA tournament across the uh, the spectrum of, of Turner channels and this Sunday, he will be on the call for the match, Champions for Charity, uh, the charity golf match involving Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, Tom Brady, and Peyton Manning at the Medalist Club in Florida. That's 3 p.m. Eastern this Sunday on the Turner Family Networks. Brian, sorry for that lengthy, wordy introduction. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing great, man. I love it. It's a good way to build into it. You, you hit all the talking points that Turner PR must have sent you. Well well, I, yeah, I was trying to. I was like, oh god, did I miss anything? Um, <laughs> so, well, talk to me. We're we're chatting. Uh, this is Tuesday afternoon, uh, so a few days before before the match. Are you? Wh- where are you now? And where will you be come Sunday? Yeah, I'm in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, I'll be on site Sunday. So I'll be flying down there Friday, um, and then we'll be on site. We have. A special booth set up. Me, Charles Barkley, Trevor Immelman will be in the booth, and uh, Justin Thomas is going to join us. He's going to be on the course, kind of an on-course hybrid announcer. We're calling him a rover at this point. We'll probably just mic him up like one of the players. Um, And Amanda Balionis will be there as well. So, you know, there's a couple of groups coming from the San Diego area in the Phil range, and then there's uh, I'm coming from Milwaukee, and then most everybody else is already in Florida or their current residents of Florida. So trying to minimize crew and travel and, and all that. Well, nice. Uh, and, and obviously uh, your regular w- – would you have been able to do something like this given your – you know, I, I've, I would think this time of year you, you work for the M- Milwaukee Brewers. You do TV play-by-play for them. So I, I imagine this is something – Almost a, a, an extra bonus you get to do because of obviously baseball and all the other sports aren't aren't going right now. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think Ernie Johnson would have certainly been available in normal circumstances. So this would have probably been something he would have handled. I mean, he's the face of our network, and um, so I'm guessing that would have been the route they've gone. But the way it's set up now, I am available. Um, so you know, it's easy for me to do this. Um, typically when I go through my schedule and I do about 150 events a year, um, most of those come, uh, from the baseball world, from the brewers in that chunk. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm always going to go do the Turner events first, and then I have to build my schedule, my brewer schedule around the Turner event. So, uh, they're in position a, as we call it. And so whenever they need me somewhere, that's kind of how, that works. Um, it really wasn't an issue with this, but um, yeah, my guess is they would have would have used Ernie Johnson in this scenario, who you know for the right reasons is not able to travel, and you know he he's got a son that he needs to take care of, and um, so 
I'm happy to step in for them and and go call this event. Last uh, major golf event I called, the uh, last high-profile pro- golf event, was the PGA Championship. We immediately lost the rights to that. So I hope I'm not the jinx here. <laughs> so I, I hope we have another match at some point. Well, I was going to say, folks might certainly uh, recognize the voice. You, you called a number of PGA Championships for uh, Turner Sports. And even prior to that, and I was hoping to ask you about this, you worked at the Golf Channel for um, yeah. several years there in the early, mid-2000s. What, what was that experience like? Oh, man, that was one of my this is one of my favorite memories of all time, working at Golf Channel. And it, it was a huge break in my career at that point. Uh, leading up to the 2003 golf schedule i had been a minor league baseball announcer i had um, kind of transferred over the other half of the year to the san antonio spurs television network where i was the sideline reporter so i was exposed to the nba and i I was working in the nba but um, that golf channel gig really uh, gave me a, a chance to travel make a good salary like that was the first real legit job I had that wasn't a piecemeal you know I I had a multi-year contract it was I did 25 30 events a year and uh, I loved every minute of it I'd been I at that point I'd not called golf but I worked in the golf industry all my minor league years I worked for Golf Hyatt in San Antonio so I was totally connected to the industry and at one point was going to go through the program that's a whole story in its own where the guy I worked for, the uh, director of golf, a guy by the name of Paul Ernest, who's now down in the woodlands in Texas, he basically said he was going to blackball me from getting hired at any golf course in the state of Texas and around the country <laughs> because he believed that I should be a broadcaster and that I shouldn't. I was still doing minor league baseball at that point, and I was getting really frustrated uh, not being able to advance in my career. So, yeah, man, I had a great time uh, working in the golf industry and then working for Golf Channel. Uh, our team... We started, so that group they put together to, you remember the Nationwide Tour? Sure. Um, back then it was called, it, it was a it was a rebranding of that tour, and uh, we kind of hit on all these great players. You know, my first year there, the, the tour had, you know, Zach Johnson, and um, a lot of major championship winners would come through there. You know, Lucas Glover, and the Camilo Villegas years, and... Um, Ryan Palmer's and Joe Ogilvie's. And so that was kind of the first group, the class. Back then you graduate to the PGA Tour through that nationwide tour and Q School. It was two ways to enter access into the PGA Tour. And so we had those moments. Like I I did Q School every year too with Peter Osterhaus. And so there would be those windows in a couple of months from uh, late October into December where you'd have two thrilling golf tournaments that hardly anybody watched. But literally careers were on the line and I just fell in love with uh you know televised golf and just the way we we functioned in the tours that we had and we were doing Canadian tour events man we were having a blast it was me and Kurt Byram in the booth and Jerry Foltz and a young Michael Breed prior to his you know him taking off as this famous instructor uh and Kay Cockrell that was our team and the great Keith Hirschland producing in the in the truck with, um, with uh, uh, Emmett Locker and directing. That was my crew, man, and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I, I hated to leave, and I never thought I'd leave uh, for the Brewers, but um, that job will always be a special one for me those years, 03 to 06. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, a lot those those names you mentioned, they're they're still you know they're they're still prominent and uh, very visible at at the Golf Channel. Um, I, I want to get into more of your your history, but I first almost want to backtrack. When you say you worked in the golf industry, uh, a, a common contact of ours said, "Like, no, you were you were behind the behind the desk in the pro shop. Is that right? Were, were you <laughs> yeah. training to be with eyes on a a club professional job? Was that the yeah. was that the yeah, intent? So I was I was uh, I was you know that was kind of my backup. Um, I had just a f- you know, a few parallel lives going at that time. I was scrambling because you're not making any money doing minor league baseball. My goal was to be a, a professional broadcaster, and I was working in minor league baseball, traveling with the team, the full the full deal, 140 games a year, doing the press notes, the whole bit. But I needed off-season work, and uh, a lot of that came from tech jobs. So I, I was a handheld cameraman. I did audio and graphics and started that when I was in college. But I really love golf, and you know, I, I I I wasn't making enough money to actually you know play a lot of golf. Certainly not enough to join a club. So I, I wanted entry into the golf world, and um, they offered benefits. Honestly, that's why I took the job. I ended up working there for five years, and I can remember like when it all came to a head. I was I called a game for ESPN. It was uh, like a little league regional game, you know, <laughs> the games that lead into the little league world yeah, series. Yeah. And they re-aired the game and I had gone and called that game in California and I'd come back and I was on the shift, you know, the, I usually opened. So I was on the, you know, 6am to, to 3pm shift. And Bright and early. Re- oh yeah. I, I can remember <laughs> watching the replay of that game on the monitor behind me while I'm, literally folding shirts with a clipboard and making tea times and like, what in the world am I doing with my life? Um, but yeah, man, we had a great crew there. Matter of fact, the people I worked with at, at the Hyatt Hill Country Resort, which was a great Arthur Hills design, um, they're all, and I mean all of them, some of my, still some of my best friends to this day. Um, we just had an incredible crew of people and that's why I kept coming back. Paul Ernest and Dan Budzius and Charlie Kent and Jenny Roddy. These are, they're all still in the industry and uh, they're just great people. And Dan ended up being GM of the year for Troon Golf a few years back. Like he's a big timer. He's now at Phoenix Country Club. Same with Paul and Charlie. So yeah, I had a great time working in the industry and, you know, I ran corporate tournaments. They always uh, wanted me to do the announcements. Yeah. <laughs> we were running like 40,000 rounds a year through the, through that club. Wow. Um, it was a public resort course, man. We were balls to the walls, like every day, especially in the, in the fall and in the springtime. It was no joke, man. It was every day, you know, we're every eight minutes, <laughs> we're, we're rolling them out there. So uh, yeah, it's kind of a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. Kind of w- one of the factories, you know, you just, you, you keep pushing them through. Um, what well then did you get to play a lot of golf how and to to this day do you play a lot of golf talk to me about your kind of history and and you know love for the for the game of golf well i when um i started playing when i was 12 um but i i hated it i i was a baseball player football player basketball and my stepfather my mom got remarried and he was a golfer and he kind of you know his son which is my stepbrother was a really talented player and multiple uh you know state champion state championship performer in texas his name was kirby kilman and so he was like one of the great players in the region 
he and Wes Short used to pair up and win a bunch of tournaments down there, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, That's, I know that so, name. Yeah. So Kirby kind of had the, like, he was the connection, and he was a really good player. I could never get to that level, and I quit. Back then, this is in the, you know, this is in the 80s. Um, it was always thought if you, because I, I was a baseball player and pretty accomplished. I was a scholarship baseball player, and played at the collegiate level, and so they always told you, you know, you're, you're going to compromise your baseball swing playing golf. I don't believe that to be the case anymore, but that, but back then it was. So, and my aunt, she played on the LPGA. She was one of the originals, uh, Sue Meerdink and ended up, uh, Sue little when she got married and master professionals. She was the golf coach at, at, uh, university of Houston for a long, long time. And so it was kind of, you know, we were tapping in on a lot of areas, but I didn't start playing again until I was 20 when I finished my college baseball career, probably the year, maybe my senior year, I started playing again. And uh, then when I went to work at the golf course in San Antonio, uh, I just started hitting a bunch of balls. And, you know, we had a lot of San Antonians come through there. Great teacher by the name of Brian Gathright. And Cameron Beckman was playing out of our course. Um, Wendy Ward was playing out of our course. So there, there were some tour players that were coming through. And so I just started hitting balls and, you know, I'd stay after work and hit a bunch of balls and try to get better. I was probably a 15 handicap then. And when I started working for the golf channel in 03 and Kurt Byram and I, we would do the two, three hour broadcasts and he was still competing a little bit and we would go play, man. And he, he taught me between he and Kay, Kay Cockrell, man, two great teachers. Um, I went from a 15 to a three handicap in a year. Wow. And I was, I got pretty good. Like I, I got to a level I never imagined just being around the game at that level. So yeah, the golf's always, it's a really important sport in my family. All my, my whole family plays golf. Everybody loves it. My dad, you know, he didn't play till he was in his late forties and you know, he's in his mid seventies now and he's, he loves the game. He plays every day. So it's just been a great, connection for me and my family to spend a lot of time together and on the golf course and yeah I live on a golf course here in Wisconsin so yeah huge part of my life well good uh when uh, you mentioned you played baseball uh in college when when did you think you wanted to be a broadcaster well it's about that time you know I always uh, would call different plays and and just just call things while I was either in the dugout or even when I was playing. So I, I played high school football in Texas as well. And I can just remember, like, I played defense. I was a free safety. And when our team was on offense, I would kind of sit there even in my helmet, you know, and just like, you know, there's a sweep. And I would say, and it, it's a three-yard gain. That'll be second and seven. <laughs> and, so, and so I started doing that. And then my teammates started to really like it. They wanted me to do more of it. So when I would be – in the dugout for baseball games or even into college, I would do that. And they all, even my head coach uh, would sit next to me. Uh, I was a catcher. So we always played double headers and I never caught the second game of the double header. And he would sit next to me and I would call different plays. And he's like, man, BA, you, you should do this for a living, <laughs> which didn't say much about my playing career. Um, but we shared the field in college with the minor league baseball team that I ended up working for for nine years. So there was a really close connection there with the San Antonio Missions, the the double A team in the Texas League. They're triple A now, but back then double A. 
So, you know, we would help them. We would, we would pull tarp for them. We would, you know, help on the grounds crew. Um, and so we were pretty closely connected to that, to the minor league franchise there, which at that time was the Dodgers franchise. And they had some great players coming through like, like Eric Karros and Mike Piazza. I mean, it was like the golden era of Dodger prospects, you know, Todd Hollinsworth, all those guys that all became rookies of the year. I was going to say, I remember they had a string of like three or four straight rookie of the years. They did. Yeah, they did. And, uh, it was, that was in that run. So we were, you know, hanging out with those guys and I got to know the broadcaster who was an older guy, ended up being my mentor. And when I was in college, I started, you know, in the summers, I would stay down there and work these tech jobs and I would call games. Like I literally would get a Radio Shack tape recorder and I would call games. And so that was kind of the time when I realized I wasn't good enough to play pro ball. My brother was a professional player and he had, he had made it to the major leagues and had a brief window in the major leagues. Mike Anderson is his name. And he, you know, that was all during my college years as he was coming up through the red system. So I would spend the summers hanging out with him and the broadcasters in those cities. And that's when I kind of really decided my, probably my junior year that I wanted to do this for a living. And then it turns out that the job came open for me to, to work, um, uh, with the minor league baseball team that I had been connected to all these years in college. So it, it, it was a pretty easy transition. I just couldn't get out of the league. I yeah. mean, I thought it was going to be easy. I got a, I got an interview with the San Diego Padres my first year. I'm thinking, Oh, this is easy. I'll be, I'll be 23 years old calling Padres games. And I didn't get the job. And then nine years later, I was still in the Texas league. So, so you started out uh, calling baseball games did you ever think you would call basketball and golf? And and if so, have you found I, – I, I had a chance to talk to Terry Gannon uh, last uh, late last fall, and I was surprised because he said, you know, really calling golf is, is the most difficult of mm-hmm. all the sports that he's done. And so I, I'm curious if, if you found that to be the case as well and how you would kind of rank the difficulty between, you know, golf, basketball, baseball, and, and other stuff you've done. Yeah, for sure. I mean um... – one of the things I did when I started calling baseball, that was my first gig, but I actually, during that time, called high school football in Texas. Believe it or not, all the high school football games are on the radio, and that was one of my first jobs. So, I And I played all the sports, too, so I was really eager to do everything, and I was working for the Spurs and you know doing different shows for them on air and behind the scenes. So I was dabbling in a lot of different sports and, you know, it's really the vernacular is the most important thing. And, you know, as I say, you got to get your golf words on and get your baseball words. And um, so that, that was really the transition, but it, it was funny because when I was working as a minor league broadcaster, working in the pro shop to make ends meet, there was this group that came through and it, it ended up helping me get the golf channel job, but they would set up a little trailer and they would, you would call golf shots on a par three for these corporate events. And you would literally, there was two cameras. They would shoot, shoot it at the tee, all the players. They would uh, receive the ball from the green. You'd stop down the tape. You'd pick it back up when they're on the green and you would call them finishing these putts out. And you'd have a list with the names. And I was kind of positioned in this little trailer right by the, whatever tee it was. And I did this probably four or five times. And, Imagine like 
you know, a full day, literally eight hours sitting out there calling one par three, calling shots of this corporate outing. And then as they would leave, this would be a parting gift for them. They would get a DVD and they would have their, their group with somebody calling their golf shots. And that really helped me. I mean, I really like dialed into the yardage and each week I would, I would try different things and get better. And so, yes, golf is definitely a challenge. I would say baseball is the most difficult sport to call just because of the moving pieces, the pacing of it. Um, but golf, you know, I, I liken golf to the duck on the water, you know, above the water, which would be the audience perspective. It's a smooth casual sail on the water below the water the feet are going 100 miles an hour trying to keep this duck you know afloat and that's what a golf broadcast is like because inside the wheel or under the water there is chaos going on i mean you're trying to keep connected to all these different shots all these balls in play from all over the golf course uh who's making a run it's a really tough sport it's a producer sport is what it is and then from a broadcaster perspective, you've got to remain calm. And as you set up one shot, you have to go be prepared mentally to go to the next. That may mean, you know, you're popping up your scorecard, you're doing a little bio work, all your prep, you know, because you, you have an idea where you're going next, but it doesn't always work that way. So it's like that assembly line, you know, those beer bottles are rolling down the assembly line and you got to keep <laughs> putting the lids on them. And if you get behind, it's uh, it gets really tricky. So... I love that. I've totally thrived in that arena. And I just, I, you know, I had great teachers too. I mean, Keith Hirschland, um, one of the great golf producers that ever lived. And Tony Tortorisi was the executive producer. Those guys really, you know, gave me time to figure it out, but also gave me great instruction. And then working with Kurt all those years too, you know, Kurt's such a talented broadcaster. And, you know, from a player's perspective, he was able to tell me what he needed and what where I needed to stay away from, how to quarterback the whole thing, make sure you mix in the, the on-course reporters. And um, so I, I thrived on it, man. I, I feel like, you know, I could keep a lot of plates spinning as it was. And, you know, I got to touch OCD as it gets. So it actually fit me perfectly. And I just really enjoyed it, man. Just coming off the air was like, wow, that was awesome. I want to do that again. And we were doing four days a week for 25, 30 weeks a year, you know, we were there every day and I I just, I got a lot better. I got a, I got a chance to, to be on the air a lot and get, be a better broadcaster, be a better golf announcer, be a better teammate, serve the others on the air, you know, and it was just a totally unique experience to call golf compared to the other sports. Do you think with, with the, the match, specifically in mind uh and, and just being one group and in the action you know contained more or less uh to you know where you're not bouncing all over the course uh do, do you think that will make your job a little easier and then also you know you're going to be there with with charles barkley who a, a personality <laughs> like that i i imagine you know you just kind of try to tee him up as as best you can and and then get out of the way and let him do you know do what he does yeah, I mean, it's a different dynamic for sure. And, you know, luckily all those years at Golf Channel, we did a ton of made-for-TV events. And, you know, that was just part of our regular routine. We probably did four or five a year. We always did that one in Boise, which was awesome. That was such a great 
made for TV event, usually on the Tuesday before the, the Boise Open. Back then it was Albertsons, but, um, you know, I think that that job, the play-by-play job is, um, especially for an event like this, is really more about uh, censoring and, you know, when to be quiet and when to step in. Now, there's a lot of business, so there's a lot of commercials, there's a, you know, there's a lot of sponsors and there's a lot of reads and there's a lot of people that want in on the broadcast and, you know, because they've put up the money to do that. And so I think, you know, there's that opportunity for fans to feel somewhat frustrated about that. But at the same time, um, we are all waiting, especially me, waiting on the, the competitors and their interactions. And so it's almost like they... They either take the ball or they don't. If they don't, then we'll come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, then if they start up again, we'll lay out. The difference with this one, that I, and one of the reasons why I'm eager to do this, um, they're all going to have IFBs, and what IFBs is the earpiece that they can hear. So they have the freedom to take those out whenever they're making a, a shot or you know a swing or whenever they want. But there will be interaction, and we're going to have some call-ins, too, that are going to be fun. I don't want to divulge now, but they're going to be good. They'll be fun. It, it, it won't be a president or a former president, <laughs> but it, it'll be fun, and I think uh, they're well-placed, and I'm looking forward to that. But the fact that they can hear us and we can hear them, that certainly opens up Charles. I love the idea of Justin Thomas being on the air with us. I mean, he, this is his club. Uh, medalist is his club. He's, he was really eager to do it. He wants to do it. He wants to be a part of it. And that dynamic with he and Trevor Immelman, you know, I think is really good. And Charles is always the wild card, but he's uh, he's a brilliant guy, Charles. I mean, I'm on the air with him all the time in the NBA. I never sit next to him. I'm doing games. He's in studio, but he's a brilliant guy, man. And I, I love that he's on this and he'll he'll strike the perfect notes and he'll be talking over some people sometimes, but generally... <laughs> He, he knows why he's there, and um, it's a pretty good dynamic. And our crew is, we're all, you know, we don't take ourselves so seriously. I mean, the Turner way is we, we I think we do great TV on all the sports we cover. But, you know, it is, it is led by the crew, and we love our crew, and we know that the pictures matter, the audio matters. We, we will have a sub-mixer, too. I think that's a huge piece for those who are, broadcast nerds um that are that person is just going to ride the microphones on the uh, among the competitors and that's huge because then it doesn't all come at you uh you know like a fire hydrant it, it, you can kind of ride those levels a little bit and sense who's saying what and and know to go there we can also put all that on tape isolated so we can come back and as we're in commercial, we can give you these very similar to what we do with the, uh, like the state farm audio assist in the NBA where, where we will come back from a break and hear from a coach. So tightening those up and, you know, getting to the real juicy parts when we can edit that and put that together in a break is helpful also. And that's kind of what we do anyway. So that's totally in our normal routine to pull that off. Now the live stuff, that's different. I mean, Phil, Phil's already talking a lot of trash and so is Peyton. So, (laughs) I think Peyton and Tiger together, I mean, they're like world-class trash talkers on their own. They've played in all these pro-ams, and they've played together a lot. So I, I don't know. If they if those guys just take over the broadcast, 
everybody will be happy with that. And we'll, we'll be happy to sit there and not say a word, believe me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I speak for everybody. I think when, um, you know, it, it's great from the folks that we've talked about just from the match 1.0 between Tiger and Phil to, you know, the, the match 2.0, if you will, this Sunday, it seems like everybody involved in the broadcast has really tried to learn and, and what worked from the previous match and what can be approved upon. And I think, you know, that, that player audio and the dynamic between the players. And I, I'm, I think I speak for everybody. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, the, the new ideas and the implementation. And I, I really expect this will be a, a great broadcast uh, Sunday. So no, no pressure there, I guess, Brian. Uh, <laughs> wow, what a setup. Jeez, I hope yeah. we come through for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're all conscious of it. We, nobody ever, I mean, everybody, we've all, those who've done golf, I mean, I, we've had these conversations going back forever and, you know, the best stuff comes from typically come from the caddy player conversation. Right. But there are no caddies here. They're going to be in golf carts. Um, so but we we've tried to rectify that. We have put earpieces in, you know, the pros know they're going to have to offer a little more advice to their amateur partners. And I think Tiger and Phil will do that. Uh, but, but the fact they're in carts means they can zip along and get wherever they need to go and it'll be easy for them to get from one place to the other. And there's nobody else on the course. So, you know, without caddies and without that level of conversation, that kind of takes away these, you know, these guys are pulling clubs and normally you would maybe have an interaction with a caddy about what club to pull. But if they're pulling clubs with no caddies and they're not thinking out loud, then we're not privy to any of that. So we're trying to do some things that will take you inside the golf cart and just the bag and have them think out loud. And, you know, that's up to them. We, we can't make, we can't make them do it. We can't make them listen to us all the time or listen to program or listen to each other with the IFB, the earpiece, but we have it there for them. And so we'll see how it goes. I like the format. I mean, we're going to mix up the format. So the front nine, the hour nine, just going to be a best ball team match play best ball. Um, they're going to get strokes. The AMs are going to get strokes, I think, on three holes. And then the back nine's a modified alternate shot, so everybody's going to tee off, and then they're going to choose uh, the best shot or the shot they want and then go alternate shot from there in. I can't wait for that. I think that's going to be great. Um, there's also a one-club challenge on the front nine, so that'll be interesting. Um, they're going to have They're going to pick a club, and remember, it's <laughs> match play, best ball. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've all played one club at our at our place. We, we've all had those competitions, right? Uh, so that'll that'll be interesting too. I'm, I'm with you. I think the um, well, the front nine will be good. You know, it lets them kind of get into the match. But I, I totally agree with you. And the the alternate shot on the back nine should be fascinating because that's where you know, not that you're rooting for bad shots necessarily, but you know, Peyton and and Brady can. You know they might put they might put their partners in in a bit of a, uh, a a tough spot and and so that's when it becomes fun you know not only in the reaction but watching you know two of the best golfers ever kind of hit see, see what they can do from from maybe some squirrely uh, yeah, squirrely positions yeah exactly exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hey, to interrupt real quick, I want to thank DraftKings for also sponsoring this episode of the 
the trap draw. Uh, Brian, of course, has been talking about the match. I think uh, I'm excited. I, I hope you'll watch the match this weekend. And if you're looking to do a little bit more than just watch, there's a couple different ways you can get involved. Uh, the first is download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app. They have, uh, if you live in an area of the country where sports betting is legal, they have a number of different wagers you can make on the match. The other thing, which is really cool, and this is completely free to enter. Uh, this is for everybody. It doesn't matter where you live in the country, whether you live in an area where sports betting is legal or not. They're running a couple of different pools related to the match. Uh, one is a full 18-hole pool, and then the other is just back nine. So um, same thing, uh, DraftKings Sportsbook app, uh, go to pools, select which one you want to enter, and uh, it consists of, oh, about a dozen questions or so all related to the match, who's going to win, which team will take a two-up lead first. You fill out your entry, um, and DraftKings is offering up to $100,000 in prizes. Encourage people to... Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use code NLU during sign-up and enter the free-to-play pool for this weekend's match. For a limited time, all new users can get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. That's right. DraftKings has a sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Don't forget, enter code NLU and get your sign-up bonus up to $1,000. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Well, I want to, I want to transition uh, and uh, excuse the, uh, the, the awkward segue. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you, you spent about eight years uh, as a sideline reporter for Fox mm-hmm. Sports Southwest uh, covering the San Antonio Spurs. And you were there during four of their title runs. Um, I guess my first question is, did, uh, did Coach Popovich ever make you feel uncomfortable uh, oh my God. <laughs> in, in any of your uh, interviews? <laughs> <laughs> he was doing that to me before anybody even knew he did that. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that was, I was the guy, I was his, uh, his lab rat on that. Um, my favorite story I tell because I, I'm, I'm still great friends with him and he's the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks now, Mike Budenholzer. He's been the, uh, the coach of the year. And so the story goes like I, my, my connection with the Spurs is deep. I mean, I, I started working for them when I was a junior in college. Um, I kind of came up through the ranks from behind the scenes. I was one of the first interns for the director of broadcasting. I, I logged tapes. I ran camera on the floor. I did graphics, audio. I did all this stuff, man, all this stuff. And, you know, I was trying to get on the air. So along the same parallel line was Mike Budenholzer. <laughs> it was Pops <laughs> back then. He was the video guy. So imagine, like, me the cameraman and I was involved in, you know, like making sure the jumbotron worked. I worked with that engineer. That was part of my job. So we'd always have to connect with basketball ops and make sure they had the feeds. And we're talking like mid nineties here. So, you know, this was a pretty complicated setup. And so Bud and I would be working hand in hand, making sure he had the right video feed so he could cut the tapes up for the, for, for the coaches and the players. And so we kind of came up together, but ultimately I got on the air as a sideline reporter that was the first year the uh, the uh, Spurs won the championship, 99. 
Um, and then thank goodness Jordan didn't come back and the Bulls didn't come back. If you've just watched the last dance, you'll know that they won in 98. Spurs won the title, beat the Knicks in 99. Um, but uh, Bud got on the bench as a coach and I ended up being the sideline reporter. So we would do this dance and for a couple of years, Pop just hated doing those interviews at <laughs> halftime and hated it. Like, and he was great to me. Every other second of every day, traveling with the Spurs and the whole bit, he was awesome. And I love the guy. But that moment on camera, he killed me all the time. And so finally, I, we were walking out um, halftime, and I'm waiting for him in the tunnel, and we start walking together like we've always done. And he blows me up. He is like, well, do we have to do this? Why do we have to do this? And I was like, well, I think it's a TV contract. You know, I'm sitting here like 25, 27 <laughs> years old going, geez, man, he's killing me right now. And he goes, you know what? Just talk to Bud. Now, Bud's like a first or second year assistant coach at this point. He's green as it gets. And he comes out of the locker room all disheveled. He's got papers and stats. And he's like, I go, Bud, uh, Pop says I'm supposed to talk to you. And everything you say, I can just quote him on it. And he goes, Really? <laughs> I said, yeah. He goes, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing that until I find out. So everybody was scared of Pop. Uh, we ended up doing it that way for a little while. But he, he was great, man. But he was tough. I mean, he made me so much better. You had to come with authentic questions that mattered. And, you know, I I just I got a lot of respect for him. And you, you there was no bull. You could not show up half-assed. I mean, if you didn't know what you were talking about, I remember I asked him one time after a tough playoff loss, they were preparing for the next game, and I said, you know, how's morale with the team? Man, he just scorched the earth <laughs> in front of 30 people with me, like, this is professional basketball. I'm shocked you asked that question. You should be ashamed of yourself and just, like, killing me. And then, you know, after when all the media is gone, and he used to let me hang out and practice, I was the only media guy that he'd let stay and watch practice, so I, I was very – honored to do that and he put his arm around me he's like hey you know i had to blow you up for a reason there you got to come with better questions than that so <laughs> yeah uh, no man I, I have great stories about pop i love him to death and i i love covering the spurs even to this day and going into san antonio and um i had no idea he liked me until i left when i left the spurs for the brewers and he summons me to his office and i thought he was going to wear me out just for not being loyal to the spurs but uh, he said some things that day that just like made me cry. It was like he was he he always knew the right thing to say, man. And he's a great leader. I love him. Well, the and you you referenced the last dance. Uh, I, I you know watching Phil Jackson deal with the the personalities uh, on some of those late nineties. Bulls teams, uh, you, you get a sense for. I, and then I, I'm not the, the Spurs. Maybe didn't have that big of personalities, but I, I imagine it was really fascinating just to watch. I, it, it, from, from an outsider's perspective, you know, everything you hear about Coach Popovich is, of course, he's a, a great X and O guy and, you know, basketball strategy and, and whatnot. But it seems like where he really excels is building those human relationships with his players and, and being you know, being able to talk and speak about life that goes so far beyond the game of basketball. Um, that yeah. That's my impression. I feel like that that was somewhat similar to Phil Jackson, where it, it seemed like his 
I, certainly there were there were on court things that that made him a great coach. But but what really maybe separated and and made him great was you know this ability to make the game and the process you know to to give it a bigger meaning and and to really inspire that way too. I, I didn't know if you you know had a sense just comparing those guys and if, if that rings true. Yeah, I mean, I've been around Phil a lot too, and and totally different personalities. Phil's got the Zen quality, you know. He's very calm. He's uh, he's pretty laid back, but it's it's the same principle, you know. Pop can explode. I mean, he he's he's got like this incredible temper, and it's a little it's a little scary. But at the same time, both both of those guys, um, they had a knack to get to the star, and you know, in Phil's case with Michael, I mean, obviously that that was you can't function without having a relationship with Michael. Michael ran the team and Phil knew that. And he didn't try to take control of the team. He knew Michael ran it and he let him run it. And that's mm-hmm. okay. Um, and they had a mutual respect for each other. And, you know, the, the Spurs had Rodman. Matter of fact, the Spurs traded Dennis to the bulls to create that, that whole last dance experience. He he had been in San Antonio. That's we, right. we uh, spent a lot of time with Dennis. Like I, I, I remember like being with Dennis with the team and Madonna was there, you know, she was <laughs> dating Dennis at that time. And, you know, pop and Dennis just didn't get along for obvious reasons. Uh, the Spurs really didn't have, you know, David Robinson was the star back then and they didn't have a player like Jordan. So they, they flipped Dennis to the bulls and, um, and then it worked, but it, it only worked because of MJ. That's the only reason it worked. And Phil was willing to release a little bit. Now pops the same way. Um, but you know, he struck gold with David Robinson and Tim Duncan. So, but the point was he would tell these guys, look, and I've seen him air out Tim Duncan and David Robinson. I've seen him shake those guys down worse than any other player on the team. And I think when you go in there and you say, wow, this coach is taking down the star player, which really doesn't exist in the NBA, that's when you knew you're all pulling on the same rope. And so those guys allowed him to do that. I mean, it wasn't really until the Kawhi Leonard situation that anybody ever rocked the boat in San Antonio. They just, you know, they knew what Pop was and what he could bring and what he, because he's a, he's a mastermind. He's a basketball genius. And they knew that. And he would put you in the right positions and the personnel would be perfect. So players knew that. And to build what they built in San Antonio is a phenomenal success story. I mean, to win five NBA titles, I mean, the San Antonio was just an expansion team. I remember when they won in 99, it was Phil Jackson who, who declared that that championship didn't count uh, because it was an asterisk season. That was a lockout season. That was the, yeah, it was shortened. Yeah. But, yeah. So, you know, Phil and Pop, they had like this really odd relationship, obviously, but and a lot of showdowns with each other and totally different personalities. But, yeah, man, that's – I remember the days when it was, you know, it, it taught me a great lesson even in my career. Just you got to stay with it. They were trying to fire Pop. They had – they couldn't wait to get rid of him um, in San Antonio in those first few years. You know, he fired Bob Hill. He took over a team the day David Robinson came back from an injury, and then he got the greatest draft pick, you know, in Spurs history in Tim Duncan and – and, and he built it, and he'll tell you, like, that was a huge stroke of luck. But um, the Spurs had no business getting that number one pick in that lottery that year. But they did, yeah. and he turned it into a dynasty, and it's uh, and he's still there. It's amazing. Like, he's a Hall of Fame coach. He's one of the greatest to ever do it. Yeah, that's that's been a uh, – and I, I, I actually think, you know, 
had had that Bulls team come back and given it one more go in 99 that that would have been a really good series with with the Spurs because obviously that Spurs team was was on the come up and with Robinson and and Duncan um that that may have been you know one of the great finals mm-hmm. uh no doubt and a great point guard too a lot of people leave Avery Johnson out of that that's right that. yeah that's the right little general man I mean he was not not you know a superstar player by any stretch but you talk about like the perfect point guard for that offense with those two players he was perfect and he hit a huge shot to win the NBA finals at, at Madison Square Garden so like his his spot in Spurs lore is uh is definitely earned and he was the perfect guy in that in that sequence and he's the perfect guy for pop too you know he was he was great and then they moved on obviously the transition into the Tony Manu Tim era which was a whole different a different thing and the way they played Pop totally changed the way they played, the way it all ran through Tim. But you know, f- total freelance Manu uh, as a six man. It was it was awesome mm-hmm. to be there for all of that. Uh, and you're seeing some some excellent basketball up up there now in Milwaukee. Uh, talk to me about you took the Brewers job in I believe 2007, sometime in mm-hmm. 2007. Yeah, that's right. Oh seven. Uh, I I think that the first my natural first question. So I, I and I want to ask you about a few baseball announcers if if uh, if you'll allow me. But the first thing that comes to mind is is Bob Euchre and just you know he he's obviously such a presence around that organization. Talk to me about. I assume you've gotten to know him really well, and and what kind of guy he he is, uh, you know, on the microphone and and as well as off. Well, he's a legend, and uh, he's you know he's probably the most famous guy I've ever really known. Um, and we've connected over the years on the golf course. I mean, he loves the game, and he plays the game. He's a really good player, even in his mid eighties now. He's a really good player, super athletic. Um, my first road trip with the Brewers in 07, I had probably had two words with Euchre all through spring training in the first series, and I wasn't sure of the dynamic. You know, I, I had heard he wasn't too keen on the TV guys typically, and so I was keeping my distance. And <laughs> he came up to me, and remember, I had just come from the Golf Channel, so I was a really good player at that point. Like, I'm like a 2-3 handicap at that point. And he came up to me. We were in Miami, and he said, hey, I hear you're a pretty good player, kid. And I go, yeah. He goes, good. We're going to take on the pro and the uh, club champion at this place I've got set up. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> we we went, we played nine holes, just kind of hits and giggles. Uh, and he laid out the whole thing. I mean, he laid out how to be with the team, who the important people are in the organization. We didn't really talk broadcasting mechanics. He doesn't really do that. He doesn't really consider himself a broadcaster. I mean, he, he's in the Hall of Fame for it. And but he, he's a former player that just kind of does it. But, you know, the dynamics about a big league team and when to get lost, when to show up, when to how to, you know, the certain sponsors, the people that matter. Like he laid out the whole thing over a nine-hole stretch where we're just playing a little bit and, you know, having fun and we're playing with these two other guys. I wish I could remember the name of the course in Miami. But um, anyway – we, we get to the back nine, we get to the 10th tee, and he's like, all right, partner, I said, uh, let's uh, let's take these guys on. I think we can beat them. We'll use my drives because, you know, he's up there playing the senior tees. He goes, we'll use my drives <laughs> and, you know, we'll take them down. I'm thinking, God, we're playing the director of golf or the head pro and the club champion. We got no chance. I'm going to lose the first match. 
that I've ever played golf with Bob Euchre. And man, we beat him. I got hot. Like, I think I went two under on the back nine. It was the best nine <laughs> holes of golf I've ever played. And uh, he, from then on, man, we've been great friends. So Euchre's a legend. He's, um, he's as great of a broadcaster as stylistically, his voice quality, his the way he, the mechanically the way he calls a game is just flawless. Like he just, his inflections, um, his stories, you, you know, Vin Scully's the greatest to ever do it. Bob Euchre's on that second tier with, you know, like the guys like John Miller and Marty Brenneman. And I mean, he's on that tier. Um, and he's a great guy to be around. He's a total, he's a real deal, man. He's, I love him. He's awesome. He's a, and and we connected through golf, and that's what I love most about him. Like we've played hundreds of rounds over the years. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I so I grew up in Cincinnati, uh, born and raised, and am a massive Reds fan. So uh, nice. Mar- Marty Brenneman, and I actually didn't know your brother. I'm I have to look up. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, you'll remember my brother easily if I just mention this one one game. So you remember when Mark Witten hit four home runs and course. 12 RBIs against yeah, the Reds? Of course. Of course. That was my brother's major league debut. He gave up two of those home runs. <laughs> oh my <laughs> so. gosh. I, I like, that's one of those memories that just vividly stands out to me. Right. Um, yeah. Well, it, the, the backstory of that is my brother signed out of a tryout camp, a Cincinnati Reds tryout camp. Chuck Lamar was the area scout. And for him, he went all through with the minor league system and the red system. Like he was teammates with Trevor Hoffman and Dan Wilson and sure. uh, Mo Sanford and Reggie Sanders, that group. And for him to make it to the big leagues is such a success story. And then he was supposed to start. Larry Rothschild was a pitching coach. Davey Johnson was a manager when he got called up. Jim Bowden was a GM. And he was supposed to start a game in Montreal. And then they had this doubleheader. And Davey Johnson's like, oh, I'll put the kid in there. And, you know, both pitchers got knocked out early in that game, both both games of the doubleheader. So Mike wasn't even supposed to pitch. And he goes in, he gives up two of Witten's home runs, and, like, that's all he's ever remembered <laughs> for. But he's had he, – he didn't have much time in the big leagues after that, but he's still in baseball. He's he's a assistant to the GM on the scouting side with the Texas Rangers, man. He's one of the great baseball scouts in the world. He's phenomenal. Oh, good for good for him. Yeah, hard hard hitting Mark Witten. God, That's I remember right. that. He yeah, got the Reds. <laughs> I mean, just uh, <laughs> so old old uh, old Riverfront Stadium, the, uh, the 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 red seats up up top. Um, yeah, that. <laughs> well, it was Mike that got me connected to Marty. So remember, well, the, I told yeah, you when he was yeah. in the minor leagues, I would go sit in with the minor league broadcasters, and then when Mike got called up. Uh, which was would have been July of '93. He never pitched. He sat there for like ten days and never pitched in a game. But he he was up, and so we went to see him to see his debut. Ultimately, which never happened. Um, but same process for me. I I wanted to go get to know the broadcaster. I was still playing, you know, uh, college baseball at the time. So Marty Brenneman and Mike had set it up, and I spent at that time. Tom was the Cubs broadcaster so we sure. were at Wrigley and Tom and Marty were having a beer at the Westin and I just introduced myself as Mike's brother and those two man they pulled up a stool and I became the third Brenneman at that point so I and I've been really close to him ever since and uh, Marty like is a huge he made a huge impact on my career and is still a mentor to this day and uh just yeah I mean it all came from that moment in 93 when my brother was in the big leagues and I mean, such an institution. I, 
I'm 36, so I don't know Cincinnati Reds baseball without Marty Brenneman. Uh, right. Obviously, this year would have been the f- he retired at the end of last year. So when they do resume, um, it's it's kind of a a new era. Uh, but yeah, M- Marty was. Um, I, I mean, absolutely beloved in in Cincinnati. But I, what do you think? It, could his style? I you know you, you look at the Euchers and and Vin Scully obviously is is kind of his own style, but but Marty um, has ruffled some feather. You know he, he's cantankerous. <laughs> he you know he he likes to say you know he he calls it like he sees it, and you know you may like it, you may not. Um, he's never been shy to criticize. Uh, I and and I'm I'm wondering if that type of style. Guys such as yourself and this Nick, the the next younger wave of announcers, um, whether you know whether you can get away with that these days. Not not to the level Marty does, and you know Marty <laughs> takes it personal, and he's been the Reds announcer for a long time. He actually got let go by the Reds. He and Joe Nuxall at one point, and you know the fans demanded they bring him back, so he he only got more emboldened at that point, and you know he's really tight with the owner and. Um, I think, you know, our owner in Milwaukee, specifically for Brewers games, he's a New York guy, and he he likes a fair broadcast, so he's okay with not, you know, not the homer treatment. Not that we don't, you know, we don't, we put everything in a Brewers perspective on a Milwaukee broadcast, but it's different than when I was with the Spurs. Now, when I was with the Spurs, the owner there, first Red McCombs and then Peter Holt, like, they were very clear and adamant that, they wanted their broadcasters rooting for the Spurs. Like, I mean, I can remember Peter Holt saying, if you got a problem with that, you can go work somewhere else. (laughs) And so, you know, as a sideline reporter, I didn't have to dive too deep into that. But, you know, everything we did had a Spurs tilt to it. And, you know, Marty would would be really upset by certain things, and, and that would come across, and he's that's that was him. And I think people appreciated that and loved that. I think the players despise that so we can be fair my generation you can be fair and you can you know give your opinion you just better you better have the information to have an opinion meaning you better go spend some time down there and marty always did that like he you know he talked to the players and so he he could have a take even if they didn't like it and he was usually spitting the truth and for all the negative things he may say that would show up in headlines you know there were there were a thousand positive things he'd say. So it's like, you know, the players tend to gravitate toward the, the critique, but really it's all the, all the positive things you'd, you'd said leading up to that. And sometimes you're building a story too, like he's done this poorly, which means when he does it well, there's this payoff. And I think Marty being the great storyteller he is, a lot of those, if you clip them off without context, that's where, that's where that would come from. But, no doubt, man, he would get the red ass about some things he'd saw, you know, he'd see on the field and, uh, you know, this, so, and that would come across, but I don't think, yeah. I certainly don't do that and wouldn't be able to do that. And I'm not sure any of anybody in my generation would be able to survive five minutes, uh, doing that nowadays. I mean, it just, it, it can't happen. He, uh, yeah. Last, last thing on Marty. I mean, he, I, one, I don't think there's I, in, to me, there's nobody that can call a game winning play as, as well as he can. The, the, just his voice mm. and, and the tone and excitement and, um, you know, listening to him call 
whether it's a walk off hit or, or whatnot, um, you know, it's it's goosebumps. Um, yeah, and, great and, broadcast. This one belongs to the Reds. That's he, exactly he right. Should have copyrighted that thing, man. That was his first mistake. He yeah. never uh, he never <laughs> copyrighted that. You know, he did a lot of basketball too. He did the NCAA tournament, and yep, he loves the game of golf. He plays a lot. And, you know, we've 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 had a lot of conversations about golf. One of our parting gifts to him. Uh, as a matter of fact, when he came to Miller Park for the last time, is we totally dialed him up with a golf bag with his name on it, and you know, like a red and black golf bag, and a lot of golf accessories, and he's got them all in play, man. He's got them all in play right now. So he could have been great at golf too. He, he's got just such a, he's got the the perfect voice. You know, back then would cut through AM radio, mm-hmm. but as you get into more uh, bigger broad you know, bandwidth, it, it, it's got so much resonance to it. And yeah, there's, uh, there's no flaws in his game at all. He's, he's a legend for a reason. Do you, um, do you look forward to certain broadcasting crews coming to Milwaukee or, or whether it's, it's you guys going on the road? I imagine you probably take your golf clubs with you. I, I just know from a, a Reds perspective, obviously Marty was a, a very big player. And then Chris Welsh on, on the TV side is, uh, is a, a very good golfer and an avid golfer as well. Uh, I, I didn't know that that community of kind of announcers, whether, you know, you look forward to certain teams visiting because of uh, maybe the golf game that that will entail. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, and it's more than just getting out and playing golf. You know, Chris is one of my good friends, and he's probably the guy that I've played the most golf with because he loves the sport to the level that I do, and he's a really good player. I mean, his whole bag is basically Steve Flesh hand-me-downs. So (laughs) he's got every piece of a – he's got like probably 18 clubs in his bag, and they're all straight out of Steve (laughs) Flesh's – you know, garage and, you know, he's always got the best equipment and he can bomb it. Like he is such a good player. Um, so we have a lot of great matches and, you know, we share a lot of information on the golf course and it's, there's nothing better than to go to a city. I don't play at home much because I want to spend time with my family when I'm home. But when we're on the road, you know, because of Euchre, our club still allows us to bring golf clubs. There are a lot of teams that won't. So you end up having to rent um, when you go on the road, but you know, our club still allows it. And I think it's, it keeps us sane. You know, you get up in the morning and you play golf and a lot of the pitchers play. I don't play with players, but you know, we'll go out with the other broadcasters. Our other radio guy, Jeff Levering loves to play and he's pretty good. And we'll just, we'll connect with our, our brethren, you know, and you can share a lot of information about the team's uh, I, sh- I give him information on the Brewers and, you know, the Hill- Chris will tell me stuff on the Reds and you show up to a broadcast, you spend four hours with a guy and then you have lunch. I mean, you're, you're pretty well dialed in to what the other team's doing. And we know we need that. That kind of justifies spending that much time on a golf course. Uh, and we always have games and we do fun stuff, but um, that's definitely part of our lifestyle and not just in baseball, but we try to play Greg Anthony's my partner on the NBA, he and Jim Jackson. And we play a lot of golf, Kevin McHale. I worked with Kevin McHale the last four years in the NBA playoffs and he loves to play. And it's just like, I mean, you know, and everybody listening to this would know this, but you, there's another level of connection you can make with people if you can spend time on the golf course, you can also find out a lot about their personalities. You know, I'm always looking for the guy who doesn't rake the bunker and then I'm not going <laughs> to play with him anymore. Yeah. So, you know, those are the kind of guys I'm looking out for, but 
I, I keep my group, the people I play with pretty small. And, you know, I, we have a lot of guys around the league that we'll play golf with, um, that we enjoy spending time with each other and, you know, and getting the exercise. We love to walk. So it's good, man. It's a great game that way in all sports. Let me ask you this then. What's your favorite road trip? What What's that trip uh, with the Brewers that you circle every year in terms of golf? You know, so maybe, yeah, maybe it's well, a favorite Cincinnati course. Is, Cincinnati's okay. there because Chris just makes it so easy at uh, Kinlock. Or Ken, I'm sorry, uh, Kenwood. Kenwood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that place is awesome. I love that golf course so much. And, man, the vegetable stew they got going every day is just like killer I, I can taste it now but that's one of them and they're in our division with the brewers so we're there all the time um but you know going out to san diego or la i've got a couple of good friends that are members at bel air so it's always a, a joy to play there i try to play there once a year um and that that place is just you know it's like how can you get much better than Bel Air Country Club? And so those are probably the top two. Uh, I don't typically play in Chicago. I'll play in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's great. Allegheny Country Club is one of my favorite courses I've ever played. It's an old Donald Ross course that a lot of people don't know about, but um, kind of in the shadows of some of you know the Oakmonts of the world. But yeah, it's a gem. Uh, John A. Bear's the head pro there, and he's just like I got to know him when he was a competitor in the club pro championship era of golf channel when we were televising those events. Sure. And he was always a really good player. Um, so yeah, those are, those are probably the highlights. You know, I, I like wherever we can go, we try to play, but you know, when they, when the host makes it easy for you and I try to do the same for those who come into Milwaukee with a number of courses around here, including my club, um, which is called the legend clubs. Uh, you, Cause you know, those guys are just, you know, you're on the road, you're lonely, you're just, you're trying to get through the road trip, especially those three city road trips where you feel like you're gone for a month. Um, yeah, you know, we all look after each other that way. Well, well, good. Um, I, I, gosh, thank you. I, I'm trying to think, I, I feel like we've, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, so Brian, I'll, I'll let you go here. Um, you know, good luck, best of luck. We'll all be watching, uh, this Sunday and, I'm, I'm thinking baseball-wise. I, I hope we – do you think we're going to see some baseball this year? It, it, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's gonna, it'll happen unless there's another wave of the virus or there's something, you know, out of what we see right now. But I, I do th – they're, they're making plans. It's, there's no question if everything stays the same or continues to improve. I think we're going to have it all, actually. I think we're going to have baseball. I think basketball is going to find a way back. We're, I don't think we're going to have fans in the stands, but – it's going to happen. I mean, we're already taking measures to prepare to broadcast those games. We have to be ready in case they give the green light. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I see it happening. I think July is probably a good date, barring something new. You know, uh, I'll leave that caveat. If something new comes up, that won't happen. But they'll play into November. I, I could see like an 80-something game schedule. They'll realign. Uh, it's going to be fun, man. The ratings are going to be huge, just like this weekend with the match people are anxious to see something we're going to do our best to stay out of the way and you know try to entertain and have some fun and and um you know i give those players too a lot of credit like they they had the money it was for them and they all decided that they'd rather turn that over into a charitable event so kudos to them man that's all them like all the sponsorship money was in place and you know warner media which operates turner sports they 
they came in and they're going to, you know, they're going to make significant contributions too. So everybody's on the same page with sports coming back, baseball, football, basketball, and these golf events have been awesome, man. I give those guys at NBC and golf channel, a lot of credit for what they pulled off last week. And now we'll try to take the baton and keep it moving forward. It's, it's a challenge, but it's something that's needed and people want and, even the criticism sounds sounds good. It sounds normal. So fire away. It's okay. Uh, yeah. we, we can take it. No, no, no. We're we're uh, we're excited as well. And um, I, I just echo everything you say. I uh, I hope nothing more than you'll be very busy this summer and fall uh, broadcasting an assortment of uh, of different sports. So um, yeah, amen, man. Hey, man, I appreciate that. And great job. I love you guys, man. You're doing a great job, and you're really in an authentic way, reaching a, a different kind of golf fan and helping grow the game. And that's, that matters to me. And I really appreciate you guys, what you're doing here on this podcast and no laying up. It's really good, man. I'm, I'm always welcome to, uh, always willing to come on with you anytime. Well, thank you. That, that means the world to, uh, to me. And, uh, I will, I will pass that sentiment along. Um, so, so thank you. And, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll cross paths with our travels and, um, we'll, we'll have to get a game or at least a beer sometime. Yes, sir. Looking forward to it.